Well, today we find ourselves looking at one of the low points of biblical history. The low point I'm talking about is where Peter denies Jesus. He denies him officially. He denies him flagrantly. He denies him repeatedly. It is Peter's infidelity trifecta, whereby I think he qualifies for a nomination in the Bible's Hall of Shame. But, as is so often the case, God doesn't leave these things out of his book, the Bible. He leaves them in, and he leaves them in not only because it's true and he records what's true, he records what's true as shameful as they might be, so that they can serve as sort of a black canvas whereby Christ can show His magnificent and marvelous grace. And that is what we see ultimately in the cosmic failures of Peter. So in the end, as we look at Peter, do the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, and I hope we see it for the cosmic failure that it is, In the end, we will see that it is yet another opportunity for God to show us how awesome the cross is. So ultimately, that's where this is going. I've entitled this message, Three Reasons Not to Call Your Church St. Peter's. And I think these are three pretty obvious reasons not to call your church St. Peter's. And I suppose I could give another title like Three Reasons Not to Consume Yourself with Doing Character Studies on People Like Peter. But to Consume Yourself with Doing Character Studies on Christ and His Work for Sinful People Like Peter. In the end, ultimately, this is designed to show us, yes, Peter's failure as a disciple of Jesus and to show us how important it was that Jesus die for him and to show us what a great Savior Jesus is. Well, Matthew 26 is where this, where this account is found. If you open your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 26. We'll look at verses 69 to 75. You could really go to any gospel account because God is so committed to telling the truth. He doesn't hide it anywhere. It's in all four gospel accounts. But we're going to look at it in Matthew because we've been studying the gospel according to Matthew. But as we approach verse 69, we, knowing that we are thrust into a situation here and there's all kinds of emotion and there have been all kinds of things going on, I would like to just take the time to start at the beginning of chapter 26 and sort of walk through rather quickly what leads us to this place. Because it is, it is a whirlwind tour and there are all kinds of things going on leading up to this event. Beginning in chapter, uh, the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26, you have the plot to kill Jesus. You have the anointing of Jesus, prefiguring his, his death and uh, his body being buried. Then in verse 14, Judas uh, prostitutes himself and his calling, if you will, to sell Jesus out. Verse 20, you have the Last Supper and following. Verse 26, you have the high point, the emotional high point, which would be the institution of the Lord's Supper as Jesus is there fellowshipping with his disciples. Another very emotional situation in verses 36 and following, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is grieved, where he is distressed, as the text says, and it is so severe and so serious there. 
As we read on, we have seen in recent days Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' arrest, where he is uh, treated unjustly, where he is tried illegally. Not only does he go to one high priest, according to another gospel account, he goes to Annas, and then Annas sends him on to Caiaphas. And so you've got the sort of double whammy there. He's treated wrongly at one place. He's treated wrongly somewhere else. And so you have the emotions of seeing our Lord and Savior Jesus treated that way. Needless to say, where we are right now is looking at Jesus and His life where, from a human perspective, things are not good. Things are not good at all. Peter has been watching. We saw that last time in verse 58 as we we caught just a snapshot of Peter where it says in verse 58, Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So he's watching. He's witnessing this ghastly event. The low point we saw last time was in verses 67 and 68. If you look with me there where it says, Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And I'm worn out already. You just you can't help but feel some of the, the trauma that's going on and you feel the emotion of it all. In one sense, I wish we would have taken the time to read all the way up until this point, not just survey, because you're feeling the weightiness of this huge event and while we know the outcome and we know the good news and we know easter and all that kind of stuff when you when you don't keep reading you you, you're supposed to just feel the weight right and this is just this is a bad scene this is this is horrible what's happening here to end with mocking jesus prophesy to us as if to say you're not the christ you have you have no idea what's going on you're you're a fake You're a phony. The irony of that is, I don't want you to miss it, they mock him and say, prophesy now. The very next event that Matthew includes, not by luck, not by coincidence, is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy when he had said, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. The very next event that's recorded, fulfilled prophecy. They may be mocking Jesus, but Matthew is sure to point out to us here that their mocking is illegitimate. Well, let's go ahead and look at these three denials together. As we do, uh, when it all comes to a close, what we will do is take the time to ask this question. I want to ask it up front. We'll look at the three denials and, and try to immerse ourselves in the whole thing. And then what we'll do is take some time and invest some time into talking about what we might learn from Peter. What does this tell us about Peter? And ultimately, what does this tell us about ourselves? And in one sense, that's the good part. That's what I'm waiting for. But let's do our best to immerse ourselves into all that's happening. The first accusation and denial, beginning in verse 69, if you look with me there, you'll see that it says, Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, 
borrowing from other gospel accounts. He is outside the courtyard. He is warming, warming himself by the fire. There are others there. They're around the fire. They're seated around the fire. They're standing around the fire. They're waiting to see what's going to happen under the darkness uh, of night there. Well, then we keep reading as they're in the courtyard around the fire, warming themselves. It says, and a servant girl came to him. And, borrowing from Luke twenty-two fifty-six, looking intently at him, feel that emotion. She's staring at Peter. She's looking intently at him, which just elevates the whole thing. Said, you too, you too, you too along with Judas perhaps? You too along with the other disciples? Looking intently at him said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. Which, by the way, is a derogatory remark if you're in Jerusalem. Which is kind of interesting because she's a servant girl, but she is not above being prejudiced herself. She's speaking to a free man and she says, you too were with the Galilean. They didn't look too fondly on Galileans, and I'll mention that again in time. They saw themselves as culturally superior. Okay, verse 70, here we go. But he denied it. Before them all, I might emphasize all, because again, if you read all four gospel accounts, you might be confused because of all of the different factors going on. The girl accuses him. He responds, but he responds not just to her, he responds to all of them, which gives us a hint as to why when you put all the four gospel accounts together, it doesn't seem to quite flow the right way. It's because there, were, there was probably interaction. There was, there was more going on here than just one question, one answer to one person. Remember, the Bible doesn't always record all of the details. It records what's true, certainly, but at times it records a snapshot. That gives you a hint again so you're not confused by uh, reading all four of them. I believe what's happening here, he responds to all of them because there there was dialogue, there was interaction. The girl was the one who voices the accusation, but others may have done so as well. So again, verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. One translation puts it, I do not know what you mean. Which is very elusive. Very generic. I, I, I don't even understand you. Huh? What, what, what are you even talking about? Just, he's being agnostic about the whole thing. I, I don't even know what you mean by what you say. Now, in my mind, there's a question that comes up, and, and that's, why, why is Peter going down this road? If you think about who Peter is, why, and, and what the situation really is, why is Peter going down the road of denying Jesus. And I know it's an obvious question, but it's even more intriguing when you start thinking about why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Because after all, in verse 35, he said he would never do such a thing. Even if I have to die with you, he says, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. Why why is Peter doing this here when he made the promise that he made? Furthermore, Peter Peter is not being interrogated by Roman officials. He's not being uh, interrogated by a guard. Look at who's being interrogated by. It's not even an interrogation. It's a girl. It's not a woman. And it's not a girl who is the daughter of the dignitary. It's a slave girl. It's a servant girl. 
Which just makes this all the more heinous, doesn't it? This is not a huge pressure situation. At least not on the face of it. He's not being accused of rebellion or blasphemy or something like this, at least not officially at this point in time. Why does Peter do it here? Why does Peter do it here when just a little while ago, as the guards uh, were coming to arrest Jesus, you know, he did a little infomercial on the Ginsu knife on Malchus's ear. I mean, he was pretty bold, right? How many of you know what a Ginsu knife is? <laughs> Older people know what a Ginsu knife is, right? It slices, it dices, it julienne's. Yeah, I watched too much TV too when I was growing up. There he was. He was so bold. I mean, and, and the, the odds were absolutely stacked against him. He would have lost. But he was willing at that point in time, of, according to all appearances, to die for Jesus to the point where he was willing to take all of them on. And so you say, what has happened between there and here? Well, ultimately, the Bible doesn't give us the answer. We do know that Peter by now has seen that Jesus is not going to stop this. Jesus is not going to call for legions of angels from heaven, which he said he could do, and mow down all of the opposition. He's not going to do it. By now, Peter sees Jesus is going to be executed. It is the real deal, and it's not going to be reversed. He's with a bunch of hostile Jerusalemites. Well, regardless of why, Peter denies Jesus, and and that's the bad news. I don't know about you, but when I read this, and I realize, you know, you're just coming in fresh unless you've been reading it this week, but I've been reading this and thinking about it and meditating and studying and, you know, getting a sermon together and all this kind of stuff. When I read this and I really think about it, I get a funny feeling in my stomach. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I will have a bad dream about. I don't have too many bad dreams. I mean, my my bad dreams are I show up and I'm supposed to preach somewhere and I don't have my notes. I have that frequently and I wake up in a cold sweat, totally freaked out. I I, I have a bad dream that I'm standing up here in my underwear, you know, and I don't know it till it's too late. Bad visual, I know. (laughs) I mean, I I just don't have too many bad dreams. I I have bad dreams that I'm unjustly accused of something. This, I, I can almost guarantee you I will have a bad dream about this. Because it's what you don't want to have happen and it seems so wrong and, and it's almost like it didn't happen and you didn't do anything to get yourself there and then all of a sudden you're there in the situation and it couldn't be more of a disaster. And it just gets worse as we go. The bad thing about the bad dream for Pat in this case is it's not a bad dream for Peter. This is reality. This is, this is his bad dream, and the bad dream is happening. Well, John tells us in John 18, a measure of time passes. And as we will see, as time passes, Peter moves from the fire, probably from the light of the fire, to a different location where he can perhaps have a little bit of privacy and not be so noticeable. Let's look at the second accusation and the second denial. In verse 71, where it says, When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And you know how it ends, verse 72, And again 
for emphasis. He denied it with an oath, which makes it all the more emphatic. It's again, and it's with an oath. And he says, I do not know the man. So before it was, I don't know what you're talking about. Now it's, I don't know him. It's just getting worse. And now the the bad dream is becoming a, a worse dream. But it's reality. This is unthinkable to Peter just moments before this is happening. Before this happens. Now it's an outright substantive, substantive lie. It's as if he says, I promise. Promise I don't know it. He's just digging himself in deeper and deeper. Listen to these words as, as you think about it. You've already heard them once. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Jesus, even if I have to die, I won't deny you. I don't know what you're talking about. Jesus? Who's that? I don't know him. Now Luke tells us that about an hour passes. So we have first denial. He moves from the fire. Different darker location probably. He moves over. An hour passes or so. He's going to do it again, but it's even worse. Look with me at verse 73. A little later, again about an hour, Luke 22.59, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely, surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. First thing that tells us something we already know as a Galilean and they're saying the way you talk Peter gives you away as one of those Galileans that tells us again just affirms what we already know Jesus spent a lot of time in Galilee but it tells us something more than that if if Peter's dialect if you want to call it that is giving him away they speak the same language this is another disparaging statement by the way, you'll find it interesting that Galilee is directly north of Judea. So we understand this better than we think we do. Whoever's talking to Peter and saying, you know what gives you away? What gives you away is your accent. I know you are a Yankee. <laughs> right? We understand this better than we realize. It's a prejudicial statement about the way he talks. You're a northerner, right? You're a Yankee. I remember the first time I got an education and all this kind of stuff is when I met a friend and have a good friend from Mississippi. Whew! I learned things I didn't even know. I was just glad he didn't call me a Yankee. Somebody would do something stupid or outlandish and he'd say, what do you expect? He's a Yankee. I'm like, what? what? I thought that stuff was just on the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> What, what, is this, what is this about? Oh, yeah, he's a Yankee. What do you expect? You know, then I got a big, long lecture about all these kinds of things. It wasn't the Civil War. It was the wall of Northern aggression, right? That's what it is. And I got like ten reasons why no thoughtful church ever, 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 ever would ever sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Because it is not the Civil War. It's the wall of Northern aggression. Why do I bring this up? 
I have no idea is what I said first hour. <laughs> to lighten things up a little bit. Again, we understand this. I bring it up for that reason. We understand this better than we realize. He has a thick accent to the point where it's a dead giveaway that he is from Galilee. Now, the logic isn't so good because not all Galileans were followers of Jesus. But why is a Galilean there amidst all of this stuff with these radical Jerusalemites? He's there. You know what? Bad logic because it's not foolproof. But you know what? They say your accent gives you away. And you know what? They're right. Kind of interesting too, even from an extra biblical source, they did have thick accents to the point where it was difficult for non-Galileans sometimes to understand uh, what they were saying. Were they using the word, did they mean wool? Did they mean lamb? Did they mean ass? Or did they mean wine? That would make things pretty difficult to order off of a menu (laughs) and have people understand you. And so he did stand out. Why do I tell you that? I don't know, because I like to talk about it, because it was funny. And I'm not very funny, and I'll take every opportunity I have to lighten things up, because it's such a heavy message. All right, enough of that. Back to what's serious. He denies Jesus. Whether their logic is good or their logic is bad, they're right. And he has done the outlandish, unthinkable thing that he promised he would never, ever in a million years do. That's what's happening here. Because in verse 74, it says, Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man! Curse and swear, he's he's using official oath terminology. Before my God, I am telling you the truth, which is to say, may God strike me dead and damn my soul if I'm lying. It is the God-honest truth. Although that's probably too slang-ish for what he's saying here. He is absolutely serious. Notice the contrast. Jesus is being unjustly accused, illegally tried, convicted, mocked before Peter who said he would never, ever, ever, ever deny Jesus. And he's watching it all happen. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. I swear by my own soul, I don't even know who he is. And you know, it's just like, it's just ripping your heart out to even try to relate and put yourself in this kind of situation. Again, bad dream, worst dream, absolute cold sweat nightmare. What has happened? And you sit up in the bed, but it's not a nightmare for Peter. This is reality. And then verse 74, and immediately a rooster crowed. Before we read on, listen to what Luke 22 says. Luke 22, 61. Immediately the rooster crows, and then listen to this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Was it from a window? We don't know. Was it while they were transporting Jesus from one place to another for holding? We don't know. But it is so amazing to watch the drama unfold, isn't it? He denies him the third time, the rooster crows, and then Peter looks and it's Jesus looking at him. You know, just it's just the death blow to the midsection of 
What Jesus communicated through his look, we don't know. No doubt it wasn't a positive look. This is absolutely devastating. Verse 75 then says, And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That's what he said back in verse 34. And he went out and wept bitterly. Just amazing. Some questions I wrote down in response to this. What happened to the Peter who was prepared to fight the Roman legion? What happened to the Peter who said he would never deny Jesus? What happened to the Peter who promised that he would lose his own life making sure that nothing like this would ever, ever happen to Jesus? And then my next question is, what about the Jesus who said in Matthew's Gospel, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who's in heaven? You should know that in Matthew's account, this is the last time Peter's name is ever used. I think that's intentional. I think it's intentionally going out of its way. Matthew is intentionally, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, intentionally going out of his way to have us feel the weightiness of this and to see that, yes, in fact, Peter was a cosmic failure. Matthew's account does not end well for Peter. I'm not saying we don't know more about Peter. I know. I know there are two books that bear his name. You know, I learned that before I went to Bible school even. (laughs) But when you just read this particular account... On purpose, I believe, this is where it ends. On purpose. Here's my question. What do we learn from Peter? What do we learn? And I'm I'm not going to try to find anything that's not there. I'm not going to try to be cute or creative. I have two answers. The first one deserving the most attention, I think. What we learn from Peter, we just keep reading in what happens in Matthew's account. What we learn from Peter, how about this? We learn that Peter needs the cross. That's what we learn. You should just be screaming from the gospel account. Read it chronologically and you say, what do we learn about Peter? Peter needs the cross. Peter needs substitutionary atonement. Peter needs Jesus to die for him. Is what he needs. He needs all the things that the cross would secure for him. He needs to be reconciled to God uh, through the cross and its power. He needs propitiation. He needs justification. He needs sanctification. He needs all of those things that only the cross can secure for him. 
And I want to make a huge, big deal out of that. If there was a soapbox, and I don't even know what a soapbox is, I would stand on it, but this, this would be bad. You would never forget the sermon. And I would probably end up in my underwear. So I, if, if, if I could say, please get this. Please read your Bible. Please read Matthew chronologically and see that the cross comes after. The cross is necessary. And here's why. As good and awesome as the teachings of Jesus were and are, the teachings of Jesus don't reconcile sinners to God. The death of Jesus and His resurrection is what God uses to reconcile sinners to God. I want to say it again. Please, as good and awesome as the teachings of Jesus were and are, even in the life of Peter and in your life and in my life, as great as they are, they do not, by divine design, they do not reconcile sinners to God. If they did, I don't think Peter would have had this train wreck. And certainly, this gospel account doesn't need to include a 27th chapter. It doesn't need to go on. If the teachings of Jesus were enough, it would end. He wouldn't be crucified. He wouldn't need to rise again from the dead. But sometimes we don't read our Bible that way and we think it's just a matter of if we just give the people the teachings of Jesus, then it'll be okay. That's called moralism. Getting people to try to be like Jesus or, or to follow His teachings. Now, I just gave away my second observation. Still dealing with this first issue. He needs the cross. He needs the cross because if the example of Jesus, teachings of Jesus, if the example of Jesus were enough, then he wouldn't have had this train wreck. And there, the gospel account wouldn't go on. Please, please get it that we love the example of Jesus. We seek Christ-likeness. Absolutely we do. But please get the fact that we've had the example of Jesus for all of this time. Peter has spent personal time with him as a close friend and Peter has a cosmic train wreck. If the example of Jesus were enough, he wouldn't have done this. Keep reading. The cross of Christ is what reconciles sinners to God and then as a result transforms their life. And I'm making a major big deal out of this because even though we don't mean to, sometimes we forget to do what Paul said he was sure to do all the time, always, no matter what, even if people didn't want to hear it. He didn't come and say, what I'm going to give you is a seminar on the teachings of Jesus, the ethical teachings of Jesus. As good as they are, they are. Please don't misunderstand. He didn't come to town and say, what I'm going to give you is, I'm going to tell you all about the life of Jesus and that's really all you need. As important as that is, and I'm all for it, how many years have we spent doing Matthew? But when he came, even to the Corinthian church who didn't want to hear about it, he came and he preached Christ crucified. Because that's where the power is. Peter needed Christ crucified. You need Christ crucified. Because it is in His substitutionary death that we have reconciliation to God. 
Not through His teachings as good and awesome as they are. Not through His example as good and as awesome as it is. And you say, this really isn't a problem. Why are you emphasizing this so much? You know, our definition of Christianity is our main theme. And I'm going to overgeneralize here, and it's not exactly right, but if I can just overgeneralize. To be a Christian, well, we used to wear crosses, and again, I realize it's not a perfect illustration. But in more recent days, we define ourselves as Christians by a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? I know you want your kids to ask the question. It's a great question. We want to be Christ-like. Please don't misunderstand. But it's not a matter of what would Jesus do. If you define your Christianity as what would Jesus do, you're a moralist, you're not a Christian, and the whole thing ends badly in a train wreck like it did for Peter. The question is, what did Jesus do? Yeah, he secured my pardon, is what he did. What he did was assure that absolutely, if I trust in him by the grace of God, my sins will be propitiated. They will, uh, the wrath of God will be propitiated and I will be forgiven of my sins and I can have justification. God will declare me righteous even though I'm not based upon his merits and based upon his work. And I can have sanctification, a spiritual uh, living the right way and doing the right thing, living the Jesus life, if you will, but it's a result of the cross. And I have to get worked up about it. Because we don't quite get it. We want to have it be all about Peter. It's not about Peter. I'm extra exercised about it because I read a book recently. And this isn't going to turn into a book review, but you're going to see one come pretty soon. It might even be front and center somewhere because I'm so exercised about it. But I read a super popular book lately. It's all the cool, cutting-edge kind of book and cool Vogue Christianity published by a Christian author. And it was, I think, I'm not overstating it, the most deceptive book I've ever read in my life. Because it says so much that's right. And it's so cool and hip. You know what it keeps talking about over and over again? Living the Jesus life. Living the Jesus life. Living the Jesus life. And I'm thinking, you know what? You know what? We need to be Christ-like. Living the Jesus life is good. But then the more I read, I, I, I noticed something strange about the book. Something was missing. The cross. No substitutionary atonement. It's a book that, that, that prides itself in redefining Christianity. And, and, and re-spinning Christianity. And you know what? It's all about the Christ, uh, the Jesus life. That's called moralism. That's called what Jesus hated when He was on earth. Substitutionary atonement, which leads to the Jesus life. But you've got to have substitutionary atonement. You've got to have it. Please read your Bible. Please. Please look beyond the cool cover and the cool title. Please think like a Christian. If there's no other way to get the message across, keep thinking about Peter. Peter lived with Jesus. 
He was discipled by Jesus. If anyone knew how to live the Jesus life, it was Peter. And he made huge promises to Jesus. I mean, he rededicated and recommitted his life who knows how many times to Jesus, right? Massive train wreck. Peter needed to stop trying to live the Jesus life and needed to believe in the Jesus work which was yet to come, which would lead to him then being able to lead the Jesus life. Can I say it again a different way or do you got it? One other question. What do we learn about Peter? That's number one. I'll make number two faster. I'm so burdened about these things. Peter. Name our church after Peter? Golly. I know some of you are going to say, well, John Calvin's name, uh, his church was Peter's church. Well, that's because they took it over because it was a dead church. So don't blame him. <laughs> I have to laugh and lighten things up. Okay, one more thing I want you to learn about this. He needs the cross. Number two, Peter wasn't very much different or wasn't very different from Judas. I hope this causes you to appreciate the greatness of Christ all the more. When you think, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? I'm so glad you asked, because let me tell you, there's hardly any difference between the two of them. Which causes us to then say, God, we need grace. Because if there's no real difference between Peter and Judas, and Peter ends up having two books of the Bible named after him, I want to know what the secret is. You want to know. Because they're, they're essentially the same guys. The difference is, Jesus prayed for Peter that he would persevere to the end. And when Jesus prays for people, guess what? It happens. You want a theological word for it? It'd be a great word for you to learn. It's effectual. It's effective. The difference between Peter and Judas, Jesus prayed for Peter that it wouldn't be a lasting train wreck. And he didn't pray for Judas. That brings up all kinds of questions that you might have in your mind that we're not talking about today. But you do want Jesus praying for you. You do want that kind of grace. Let me show you, lest you think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, and then we'll close. If you look at Luke 22, it's really helpful, I think, to see that, that we, you know, we, we make Judas such a bad guy, and he was. And then we name our churches after Peter. <laughs> Judas is a bad guy. And you know what? Peter has the potential of being the same bad guy as Judas, at least from a human perspective. So let's leave by saying... Everybody is a bad person, ultimately, which is what God says. The difference is the sovereign grace of God, which then causes us to say, if we've experienced it, blessed be the name of the Lord, I've experienced it. This is amazing. That's what should be happening. Well, notice the similarity, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat which isn't altogether different from what we know happens to Judas. I think it's even a, a 
somewhat similar way of saying what did happen with Judas. Not exactly the same. So what, what happened? What's the difference? Well, Peter just tried harder. He was more committed. He was more of success. He had closer fellowship with Jesus. No, 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 and no. Keep reading verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Well, I say, Jesus, pray for me. <laughs> That's what I say. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, strengthen your brothers. Then he goes on to say, Lord, with you I'm ready to go to prison and to death and all that stuff. And he doesn't do it. And Jesus knew he wouldn't do it. You, you, you want Jesus to pray for you because when Jesus prays, it's effectual. He'll see you through to the end. And when he does, you have to realize that it's not because you're better or smarter or any of that kind of stuff. When it comes to actual human sophistication and background, Judas actually had a better background than Peter had. One other text which gives you the negative of this. Just listen if you would. You can read it on your own if you'd like. John 17, 12. Jesus is praying to the Father in His high priestly prayer. He says, while I was with them, He's talking to God the Father, while I was with them, the disciples, I was keeping them, preserving them, protecting them in Your name which You have given Me, and I guarded them, like Peter, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. Now again, now the question is, why didn't he pray for Judas? We can talk about that at a different time. It's not the intent for this morning. I just want you to see Peter for who he really is and who gets the credit and who gets the glory and who gets the attention and who gets the praise. It is not Peter. It is Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah, the risen Messiah, the returning Messiah. It's all about Him. You need the cross. You need Him praying which means you will glorify Him and praise Him and give Him the worship that He deserves. I am thankful for black canvases in the Bible because they do such an awesome job at providing a background where we can see the awesome, magnificent cross work of Christ which shows us the love of God and the grace of God. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the grace that is greater than all our sin. And I do pray that Jesus would guard me through His effectual praying. And Lord, that is the desire of the Christian. That is the desire of the believer. Thank you that you do that very thing as you're seated at your Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf. And we can even see that it is powerful, it is sure, it is true. Lord, may we live to exalt Christ. May we live to exalt that which reconciles sinners to you and restores a broken relationship, which is the cross, the cross work of Christ. Lord, may we love to proclaim it. May we love to live for it. May we love to worship you as a result of what you did through it. In Jesus' name, amen.